0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Randy Hayes has been described in the Wall Street Journal as an environmental pit bull. He's executive director of Foundation Earth, founder of Rainforest Action Network, and chair of the Steering Committee for Nature Needs Half. Also a board member for several other organizations all of which pull no punches when it comes to standing for what it will truly take to completely reshape humanity's effect on the wild world that sustains us. According to Adam Werbach, former president of the Sierra Club, Randy Hayes is a hero and a visionary, a radical messenger with the mentality of a Madison Avenue ad executive who is selling just one thing, saving the world before it's too late. Randy was one of the first inductees into the National Environmental Hall of Fame because of his commitment to tell the truth about what humanity really needs to do in order to protect life on Earth. Randy, welcome to Rewilding Earth. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. There are a lot of things to talk about with a person such as you, with the the storied history and all of the things that you've done, everything that you're involved in. I read at one point you were or you might still be on eight different boards.
1: You're That's about right. I, I try to keep a list in my wallet because I can't remember.
0: <laughs> nice. I think I would have to if I was on three boards to do that. But Yeah, um,
1: it's, there's something pathological about that, but say, the me.
0: Uh, So tell us a bit about the early years, uh, where you got your start, and uh, where your conservation ethic began to form.
1: Uh, I lived off and on with the Hopi Indians, where I was secretary and chauffeur to the Hopi elders. Uh, This was right on the heels of graduating from college at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, right? And circumstantially, when I moved uh, west... After graduating, I met with the Hopi elders and informally became their secretary and chauffeur for a number of years. And I still stay in touch with the native peoples in in that region of the world just east of the the Grand Canyon. So I stomped around the Colorado Plateau really quite a lot. And uh, in fact, it was uh, Edward Abbey who led to me meeting people like Dave Foreman and Mike Rozell and John Davis eventually. uh, because I started making a documentary film there with two film partners called The Four Corners, a national sacrifice area that was we released in 1983. So that sort of ended my 10-year stint in the desert, culminating in this big project to do an hour-long 16-millimeter film for PBS on, on coal mining and uranium mining and synthetic fuels development, the oil shale uh, boom at that time and how, it's, uh, how it impacted the region and the cultures of the Colorado Plateau. So uh, logged a bit of time, you know, uh, out there with those desert rats.
0: Well, it, it, depending on who you are, you either uh, ran into good company or um, that is where you were corrupted even further. <laughs> or uh,
1: I, think it was, I think it was a little bit hard on my, on my liver because I ran into the Earth First, the early days of the Earth First crew in fact edward abbey uh asked our film crew to come to to a campsite called lone rock next to the glen canyon dam and plan to spend for a few days because something is going to happen and that something was the uh sort of the unfolding of the crack on glen canyon dam that launched earth first and, and we made we shot because we were a film crew we we shot that whole event and we shot Edward Abbey's uh, speech. He's standing in the back of this beat up old pickup truck up in the visitors' parking lot uh, at the dam site and delivered this sort of Gettysburg address for nature. And then, uh, you know, Foreman and others jumped the barbed wire fence and ran out onto the middle of the dam and tied off, you know, two ends of the top of the crack and unfurled this 200 foot long crack down the 400 foot side. Of, of the Glen Canyon Dam to symbolize freeing the river. So uh, that led me.
0: That was you.
1: Deeper into these wilderness circles, yeah. I, yeah I,
0: you were behind the lens. I've watched that video, I don't know how many times. Uh, it's a good one. Yes, I mean, I sometimes just do it for therapy to watch a crack form on a dam is something I need therapeutically uh, just to get through days sometimes. That's really yeah. great, I did not know that. I didn't know that, uh, wow, this is really cool.
1: Yeah, Toby McLeod, uh, Glenn Switkus, and myself were the three producers on that that uh, little cult film.
0: You were called by uh, Wall Street J- Journal as an environmental pit bull, and you're really not an apologetic person when it comes to the different levels of, I guess, levels of conservation. There's really conservative conservation groups out there uh, that tend to suck up a huge amount of the money uh, for conservation work. And then there's uh, the more what people would consider radical, but everything's changed so much now. A lot of what was considered radical back then seems reasonable now, in light of climate change and everything, and how desperate things have become. And sixty percent species loss since the '70s, and I mean, now it doesn't seem like a lot of the things that you probably talked about and people gave you a side eye, looking at oh, that's a radical over there. Let's just I went went back to get a master's
1: degree in environmental planning. At San Francisco State, um, around the time I was hanging out with the Hopi elders, and I, t- I had w- very few electives, uh, but one of them was a, a speech, speech writing or speech giving class. And we had an assignment, which was um, give a speech to the class of something that you believe needs to be done, but sounds virtually impossible to do. And in the 1970s, I wrote a speech and delivered it on we needed to shut down industrial civilization virtually overnight if we wanted to save life as we know it on planet Earth. So that was the 1970s, you know, and I already had figured out, you know, largely because I hung out within the Southwest with the Hopi and these elders, and they were pretty globally knowledgeable about things. And they had their their uh, uh, understanding of nature and the understanding of human impact and the trends. Uh, quite well figured out. These, you know, 90, 95, 100, 105, I think 107 was the oldest person I, I knew out at Hopi. You know, these men and women, um, you know, they had uh, some understanding of societal change from what they'd seen from from the times that they were born in the 1800s. Uh, but also, if you go back to the, the book Limits to Growth, right, that was commissioned by the Club of Rome, Club of Rome were these, you know, deep thinkers and experienced people um, uh, who had the global sort of ecology uh, situation sessed out fairly well. They commissioned Danella Meadows and her husband Dennis and a third writer, uh, Randers something or other, uh, from Scandinavian countries to do that book. And, you know, pretty much everything that needed to be said in, from an ecological common sense standpoint was was said you know in back in the 70s and then lots of other visionaries have, have put out you know the basic message time and time again you know from the power likes and david browers and teddy goldsmiths from england who published the ecologist magazine and you know hazel henderson's the ecological economist and herman daly the ecological economist and uh, but common sense and logic just don't carry don't carry the day as we as we tragically have come to realize.
0: Not when mixed with comfort and greed. I, I think that concoction is uh, pretty lethal. <laughs> back in the 70s, there were some things that were happening that in some ways you could go back to, some people could say, we go back to the 70s, go back that far, and um, things must have been great. The air must have been cleaner. The, um, you know, because we've only gotten worse and worse and worse. But in fact, it seems like some of the laws that were passed to reduce some emissions. Does this feel to you like people got a sense of, hey, we're okay. We're saving bald eagles now. There's an Endangered Species Act, uh, you know, in the 90s, um, late 80s. Did people maybe in, in from your perspective start to think that things were getting better enough and that you really were a crazy radical and people like you that who were saying we need to shut down. I mean, that's just crazy. We've got it down now. We've got bald eagles coming back and we've got, you know, all of this stuff. And yeah, there's still some problems, but we're doing okay. Was that a...
1: Well, there, there have been some ebbs and flows, right? Of course, in the 70s, all this visionary legislation, like the Endangered Species Act and Clean Water and Clean Air Act and Marine Mammal Act and and much more, uh, in fact, did did come about. And there was some sense... That that uh, things, you know, the great ecological U-turn might be able to be orchestrated, uh, but I mark when when Jimmy Carter lost the presidential election for a second term, and Ronald Reagan won, as when we pretty well lost the chance to save Earth, as we as we knew it, over the last you know hundred years, uh, and that's because Re- Reagan was the mouthpiece. For the Chicago School of Economics and the whole and the whole free trade fanaticism and the demonizing of of government, that led to to the kind of hyperdrive of economic globalization, corporate-led economic globalization, and and now you know national economies are are bit players to to the global economy, and the global economy is is this kind of super organism that. Uh, nobody really runs, and it runs itself. You know, we already have a kind of AI world where it's running itself and running amok. And, and uh, you know, figuring out the leverage to put the brakes on that, or to go back to the thinking of an ecological U-turn to a more socially just and ecologically sound society um, is is uh, quite depressing, because uh, those leverage points are, are not uh, easy, easily found or, or easily exercised. So, yeah, radical, you know, I think what we were saying was really just common sense. People called it radical back then. And right. now, with some of the developments that you see, like in Europe and England with the Extinction Rebellion and the um, tens of thousands of school kids that are boycotting school, demanding that their governments, you know, take action um, meaningfully on climate change, you know, there's still a lot of simplistic thinking these days that climate change is our biggest problem. It's not. You know, there's at least nine major ways in which the life support systems of the biosphere are being undercut. So it's really uh, the collapsing of the life support systems of the biosphere that's my general frame of reference around these issues. Because uh, people say, "Oh, if the humans go extinct, you know, the planet will carry on just fine and, and rebuild over time." Oh, maybe, maybe not. You know, we could turn it into a uh, Venus in terms of feedback loops and and uh, and that kind of hyperheating, uh, and even the cockroaches and the jellyfish would have a hard time surviving. Uh, so you know, I think what we're seeing right now is the beginnings of a zeitgeist of another window of opportunity for systemic change. Mm. You know um, These things come and they go, the windows open and they and they close. Uh, but um, people are shifting now from denial to panic. Uh, And I think that shift will become pretty evident around the world in lots of ways over the next two, three years. And, you know, is it too late? Well, David Suzuki, uh, you know, the great sort of Canadian ecologist and geneticist and TV commentator, uh, had a good one-liner on is it too late. He said, look, frankly speaking, we're not smart enough to know if it's too late or not. (laughs) You know, there are tipping points uh, in this situation. Uh, You know, if we lose a certain amount of the Amazon, it's going to shift the global weather patterns in such dramatic ways. Get ready for the cataclysm of the future. Uh, So we, at the very least, want to go down swinging. But I've been working on a seven-point plan that's just my synthesis of all the smart and wonderful people that I've met over the last several decades at the top of the seven-point plan is is a dramatic shift in the economic model, the rules of the economic model, to what uh, we call here at Foundation Earth, we call it a true cost economy. And cost is not just a financial term. You know, if something costs you your life; it's not a financial issue. <laughs> yeah. It's a cost, right? And true, the best label that I have for the current economy is cheater economics. The more you cheat the Earth in the future uh the more profitable you are in the short term right towards that sort of comfort and greed that you mentioned earlier and so a cheater economics is is the economic model of planet earth right now and we need a true cost economy uh we did a lot of thinking on that and and how to how to how to even campaign on on that uh but it would require you know, me convincing some billionaire to write a half a billion dollar check or something, or at least start off with a hundred million dollar check. And I haven't been, I haven't been uh, uh, sufficiently charming to get those kind of checks yet. (laughs) And even that, I think, uh, you know, may not be able to sort of sway the nightmare we're all living through.
0: I think the reason that people are talking so much about climate change now is it's just exciting for conservationists maybe that there's this level of discussion of any kind about things. It's sad then that it's taken this panic state that you describe to make that so. Um, It seems that humanity may only be able to respond to things in a really meaningful and and efficient way once that panic button has been pushed. And (laughs) because I've never, you know, I've, I've been in it since the early 90s and I've never seen it otherwise. And and the thing about David Suzuki, and we're not really smart enough to know if it's too late, um, just brings me to what you said right after that, which is we might as well go down swinging. And I think that's what a lot of people that I've been talking to, including Foreman and 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 uh, and many others, are are uh, that's kind of the mindset now. There there seems to be some part of our human population that's beginning to bargain with the news, with everything that's going on, the extinction event that's just been happening for this whole time. I don't know why everybody's all of a sudden worked up about it. (laughs) I wish they would have gotten worked up a long time ago. I'm sure you do too. It is very strange that some groups don't want to talk about anything like you know population is a real hot button issue because you have to talk of then some at some point during that conversation immigration is going to come up and you're just not allowed to talk about that right now in in any
1: there's a lot of self-censorship and it's it's sad uh, but where i think the mainstream environmental movement and some of the the bingos the big ngos um have misled people is they they thought they could sort of cut deals um uh, around these issues instead of just speaking the ecological truth as best we can about what nature needs uh, you know there was a lot of attempted deal cutting in Washington DC where I'm sitting this very day I refused to, to locate rainforest Action Network in DC back in 1985 because I didn't want to get uh, you know sort of co-opted by the desire to maintain your access to have lunch and and be invited to the meetings with the, the Power brokers of of the federal government at the time. So at any rate, the mainstream groups, I thought, you know, really, they didn't have financial power. They didn't really have political power, and they weren't even. Most of them were not even good at organizing people power. So when they sat down at the bargaining table, they were sitting down from a very weak position. It would have been better for them to really be the ecological truth tellers and just continue to hammer year after year, decade after decade, about the big ticket scale of changes that we knew we needed. You know, back in the 1970s, when I was calling for the shutting down of industrial civilization, uh, and so um, that's just the sad state of things. And I think, you know, the David Browers of of you know fame in the 60s and early 70s uh that's back when the environmental movement was was impatient individuals instead of instead of kind of professional environmental bureaucrats And mm. as, the, as the movement professionalized and and people started getting jobs and salaries then that sort of bureaucratization that wants to uh, kind of you know protect your ability to climb up the ladder and and seek comfort and and better wages and conditions, you know, uh, moved, moved into play.
0: And things started um, to know. slow down. And we, we just were on a, um, I think it was the last podcast with Ed Friedman, who was talking about, uh, Mary meeting Bay and, uh, their organization friends of Mary meeting Bay having to be the breaks, um, or the check and balance of other groups that are exactly what you just described. Um, they were making deals and they were making deals on uh, a series of three dams and the deal that they tried to make. And I think Mary meeting got in between this before it was a a done deal was exactly Brower's situation with Glen Canyon and saving grand Canyon. And now we've got people talking about, we've got 12 years, you know, that's the big popular thing is, is people are out there, Greta Thunberg and, and, you know, and uh, AOC and all of those guys are out there saying 12 years and, in one way, it's gotten people into that mode where everybody's talking about it. But you wrote something like a 500-year plan.
1: Well, when I wrote the 500-year plan, uh, that was in uh, 1992, right—the the 500-year anniversary of Columbus's quote discovery of America. Hanging out with the Hopi, as I did for 10 years, I learned something about long-term thinking and geologic time because they—they they think not in that seven-generation cliché, but really quite a bit longer than that. And so affectionately, the subtitle of that was 500-Year Plan, colon, Short-Term Thinking, right? But I was shocked when I would go to Washington, D.C., and I'd meet with the activists from the Environmental Defense under NRDC that worked on World Bank and rainforest issues at the time, or the National Wildlife Federation, you know, and I'd talk about well, we need we need a plan to get rid of the World Bank completely. The world was better off before there was a World Bank funding the hydroelectric dams in the Amazon and the Congo Basin and and elsewhere in the world. You know, and they'd look at me and just shake their head and think, you know, I, I said I don't give a shit if it takes you know 50 years or 500 years to get it done. That we've got to get it done, and and they'd say, look, I won't even be here in 500 years. And. And these were environmental activists. I'm thinking, wow! That that is not the point. <laughs> oh you know, my God! Uh, but it it was the mindset. So there's there's a lot of light green in the environmental movement, and it does us a disservice. It's like right now, you know, you've got just a ton of millennials out there that think that that if we had a hundred percent, if you had a magic wand and you could get a hundred percent renewable energy planet wide uh, tomorrow, uh, that things would be okay. They would not be okay. You know, completely pollution free energy and financially free energy, even that fantasy, if we had it, my God, think of what the mining companies would do if they had no energy cost. They'd be mining the bottoms of the ocean for manganese nodules. That's not holistic thinking. That's not general systems theory. That's not ecological mindset. You know, you've got to look at the interaction of the major sets of factors and do the best you can uh, to solve for pattern all at once. And hence, our seven-point plan is is that point number one is a true cost economy where uh, you cannot externalize your pollution costs. Uh, point number two is, in fact, 100% renewable energy. Duh, of course we need that. Point number three is probably even more important, though we need to shift industrial agriculture globally to ecological farming. If we don't do that, then we're screwed. You know, the heavy duty pesticides and fertilizers and the runoff has created 400 dead zones in the ocean, right, Uh, from the um, agricultural runoff from industrial agriculture. Uh, You know, you can muck with the top of the food chain, but you don't want to muck with the bottom of the food chain and the phytoplankton in the oceans and such. Uh, because that will really alter the entirety of the whole process. So uh, we still need uh, the deep ecologist mindset to infiltrate the environmental movement and society at large. And yes, the hour is late. uh, But, you know, as you mentioned, we've got to, at the very least, go down swinging. But we've got to go down swinging with the right message, and that is radical, planning, and radical thinking, but remember what Webster's Dictionary says is the actual definition uh, and roots of the word radical. Uh, Radix, uh, the roots of the word radical, literally means roots, the root's ability to hold on to the earth. So the meaning of radical is getting to the root of the problem. And so I'm happy to be called a radical. I used to do a lot of talks to bankers, you know, world bankers and other bankers, i um, I'd start off asking them if they thought they, that we needed to get to the root of problems if we we're trying to solve problems. Of course, they gratuitously wave their hand and say, Yeah, we think that, you know, make your point. And I'd say, and Then I'd pull out Webster's Dictionary and I'd read the definition of radical. I said, Well, then all of you bankers must be radicals because you want to get to the root of the problem. And then I'd give them the rendition on what, what uh, you know, we, from a deeper ecological perspective, thought the root of the problem was you know, and it's corporate-led economic globalization in large part, right? But it's the lack of an earth-centric or biocentric, you know, worldview uh, and all all of the above. But that didn't sway the day either. (laughs) So, uh, you know, if this zeitgeist of shifting from from, uh, denial to panic is in fact happening, uh, maybe we've got one more, swing at the ecological truth of things that we can take and the more of of the web of life planet wide that we can protect over the next 10 years is is not unimportant it's fundamentally important that's why I'm pretty excited right now about the the nature needs half campaign and the idea we've we did a study and we published a paper in bioscience that looked at 846 ecological zones throughout the planet and, and if you can save half of the flora and fauna of each of those 846 zones you could probably save 90 percent of the species left you know on earth well that's better than losing 90 percent of what's here right now saving 90 percent and so we've done that study we've got another paper coming out uh, called the the global the global deal for nature and and that would be a companion piece to the paris climate accord uh, but it would make force governments to make commitments to protect half of the, half of their nation states and half of the oceans. Does it feel like a snowball's chance in hell? Of course it does. But is it the right thing to be clamming for? Is it at scale to to stop the sixth great extinction? You know we believe so, and we're looking for people to help with that project.
0: Uh, Reed Noss, <laughs> had I interviewed him and he said that half thing has been around for quite a long time and it yep. wasn't started with E.O. Wilson. And um, not alone. It doesn't seem so radical now. I've been actually getting some really decent responses that, and, and very little pushback at all uh, on the idea. When I share Nature Needs Half stuff and uh, the E.O. Wilson stuff and anybody else's stuff that, that talks about that. And it seems reasonable now.
1: Most scientists are, are are conservative in many respects. Uh, the first global network, uh, environmental network, was was the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, and you know their target was to save 11 percent of the Earth. And now the committees, you know, nature needs half, and they're inspired conservation biologists and people like Vance Martin from Wild Foundation and and Harvey Locke up in Canada and Eric Dinnerstein, and other wonderful people are are, uh, lobbying them and they're finding less pushback in those circles than they expected. So it could be that the goal of protecting 30% by 2030 Mm -hmm. and then having these other kind of ecosystem service conservation zones, another 20%, uh, to protect the ecosystem the functions the biosphere's life supports functions which people will sometimes call ecosystem services you know would get us up to 50% even in in even in China right now we've got a del- nature needs half as a delegation in China meeting with the Chinese academy of sciences well they're not the real political power right there but but they are listened to by the real political power at least to some extent and, and they're finding um, a greater welcoming from places like China. China has had to create ecosystem service protection zones because they were losing some of the functions of nature that support life. Whether that's you know uh, processing uh, cleaner air or providing drinkable water, uh, but it's also pollination, uh, you know, of, of agricultural crops and all the all the above. So um, you know they're. Maybe a window of opportunity in the next three, five, seven, twelve years uh, for the great ecological U-turn to to emerge. And at the very least, if industrial civilization does in fact collapse and and hundreds of millions of people tragically starve because our food systems, industrial agriculture, is so fragile uh, without you know a global grid and Artificial fertilizers and such from fossil fuels. Uh, you know, then if we lay the right foundation with the right set of solutions, and that becomes the mindset, then we can rebuild post-collapse, and and finally have our more socially just and ecologically sound society.
0: What is that new socially ecologically just society like? Of
1: course, you know. I mean, it starts with the economic model itself. You know, if you go back 100 years, most nation state economies were the primary economy. Well, now it's the global economy and it's interlaced. Uh, in the future, we're going to have, think of a bioregional economies, you know, say, just think of North America alone for the moment and think of of networks of bioregional continental networks of bioregional economies where 90, 95 percent of your your food, clothing, and shelter, and even comfort items come from your bioregion or adjacent bioregions, right? And you live in a closed loop, zero waste, sustainable production and consumption economy, right? And it's primarily about renewable resources, not about non-renewable resources. And so in a true cost economy, in terms of the rules and regulations, the two major changes is that you cannot pollute for free you know, you've got to internalize those pollution externalities systematically, which really doesn't mean internalize them, it means eliminate them. And then and the second main thing that global capitalism does poorly, there's no mechanisms to ratchet down economic activity around carrying capacity limits, be they at a bioregional level or continental level or global level, right? So those have those kinds of institutions have to be invented. And there, there's models for it. The cap and trade program that people know about, if it had been called cap and reduce, it would have been understood as a way to put a ceiling on bad activity and then ratchet it down systematically over time, right? Because of Mm carrying capacity limits of of the atmosphere. So you know we know and understand those kind of things. This, This is the stuff that's embraced in the seven point plan, right? So that that more ecologically sound society you know, has a different economic model and it has localization and bioregional economies that are networks. So, you know, and primarily what we trade around the world is art, culture, and ideas, not physical stuff. If you did that at a 90, even 95% level, continentally, in continental networks, that leaves a little room for chocolate and coffee so so that people don't riot, right? So those are mm-hmm. just some of the elements. It's all low-impact lifestyles, and, and it is absolutely a population reduction. You know, my sort of one-liner on that is let's get humanistically, let's get back as quickly as possible to $3 billion and then assess the status of the carrying capacity of the planet at that point and what numbers make sense at what, at what lifestyles.
0: My mind immediately goes to the guys who are going to really be against this. The guys who are making all the money from this um, myth of growth. And, and their whole model is based on, we have to have more babies. We have to have more people in the system, in the banking system. And, or their model completely breaks down. There's no point at which it can stop and everybody continue to, in their words, flourish for good yeah
1: they're already starting to see the writing on the wall and they're panicked about it it's a different kind of panic than than the than the social activists and the Millennials um, and the students like Greta and her thousands uh, their panic is around you know trying to find solutions to ecological problems Wall Street's panic right now is that global growth you know if they got you know excited during dot-com bubbles at you know 10 15 and 18 percent growth now they're seeing global growth you know with more like you know well three if we're lucky probably more like two and so it's it's radically decreasing the the rate of growth but it is still a growth economy and driven by growth and there's a panic of the oecd countries the big uh, the wealthier countries the g20 for instance they're trying to unleash you know billions and billions of dollars uh for infrastructure projects around the world well that's infrastructure is high hides a lot of ugly sins that word because a lot of that is road building and dam building and and uh, you know the stuff of destruction mm-hmm. right but they're trying to goose the global economy to add two more percentage points to global growth from say two percent to four percent just to round off and 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 they're realizing that that may not even unfold. And so uh, we're getting what we want in terms of the ethic of growth being diminished in, in terms of its clout. Uh, but it's still being pushed, you know, fullheartedly by the, you know, competitive enterprise institutes of the world and the heritage foundations and, and all of those, those maniacs.
0: So you've got these two things, these two different worlds. The one you described previous to this where the bioregional, trading with our neighbors. um, 95% of all of our goods and services and everything come from our bioregion or neighbors, uh, completely dependent on renewables. A lot of this is sounding like total death to Wall Street types and global bankers. Um, Yes, and, 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 and it pretty much is and should be. What are, some of the inc- what are some of the easy sound bitey type things I can talk to someone about when they're like, okay, but I mean, that's going to throw everything into turmoil, according to these guys who are always going to scream the loudest. They're going to say the world is going to end. So there's going to be that on the, and, and you're saying that it's already started, that there's always already that on the other side. Then there's probably no elegant way. <laughs> Maybe there is, you can tell me, but there's probably no elegant way for us to slip from one thing to another. It's going to be a bumpy ride, to say the least.
1: If people would listen listened to, to Donella Meadows and the Limits to Growth back in the 70s, we, we could have had an elegant transition to a, a deeply sustainable society. Uh, they didn't. <laughs> if people would have listened in the 80s and even early 90s uh, to that level of common sense, we could have maybe had a semi-elegant. I don't even believe we can have a semi-elegant transition right now. I'm not, and I'm not convinced that we can have any kind of Of a transition other than to rebuild from the remnants of of a post-collapse kind of situation. Uh, But even that won't happen if we don't lay the foundation of systemic change right now. And so uh, systemic change is not a cliche, it's a for real thing. What systems do you want to change? Well, the governance system, uh, democracy, uh is is not a sufficient governance system if you don't have ecologically informed voters they're going to make wrong decisions so you've got to have ecological literacy and biospheric literacy that's one of the points in the seven point plan um so that people understand how the world works ecologically and all of that has got to be fostered and i actually think that you know we're only three to five years away from uh, some nation states beginning to adopt something like uh, a seven-point plan, where they work systematically at all of these things. The growth issue and the people who will fight growth—absolutely, they will fight it, and they are fighting it already. And they're fighting a somewhat losing battle because growth is the rate of growth keeps getting decreased every year, including certainly in China, where they had seven percent growth. They don't have that anymore, and they'll never have it again, right? But um, the 2008 economic spasm right? that was called the Great Recession, mm-hmm. not Great Depression, but Great Recession, well, that's only uh, you know, a couple years around the corner from happening again, and it could be two, three times worse. If it's two or three times worse, you're going to have people in soup lines like they did during the, the Great uh, Depression, and, and so uh, we'll be in a negative growth standpoint at, the, at that point. Some of your listeners know the degrowth movement in Europe. Well, they're not pussyfooting around the, the language there. They're saying, you know, we need degrowth. We need systematic and sensible degrowth. And let's. I, and I'm I'm not just an anti-growth person. I think we need selective growth where it's good to grow, like renewable energy and ecological farming and ecological literacy. And we need selective degrowth where we must degrow or we'll die. Right. Industrialization and and non-renewable resource, you know, extraction and waste. Uh, so, I think there can be a way, ways in which we we can grow in the ways that help us take our foot off the throat of nature. And and if we can popularize that, uh, including in in the kind of mainstream environmental movement, you know, as we've said all along in today's conversation. Uh, at the very least, we'll go down swinging, but we've got to go down swinging, putting forth a positive vision of how things could be in that more socially just, ecologically sound society, and kind of a, uh, an understandable plan, what are the main steps to get there?
0: When you talked about the scientists who are typically very, very conservative, that just wanted to save 11%, who are now starting to consider and get on board with the uh, thirty percent by twenty, thirty, and fifty percent uh, soon after. It may be a combination of the of that and just organizations like Nature Needs Half coming and balancing out and making things that people thought were too radical to discuss, too hot button issues. Um, that those conservative groups start to become a little less conservative. I think that some of them don't want to be conservative. Some of them feel like they have to be in order to keep the money coming in and all of those, what they would consider necessary evils. They have to talk right. a certain way about population, which is typically not at all.
1: If and I, saw, a- I, only, I only saw in the last uh, month an, an article in a kind of religious philosophy ecology magazine. I can't remember the name of it, but Herman Daly sent it to me, the great ecological economist. Uh-huh. And the article was not by him, but someone else, but it was about a cap-and-trade program for a one-child family. I'd never seen anything actually written, uh, let alone in a, in a you know sort of moderately mainstream publication uh, where they were talking about that
0: the opportunity is now. I mean, people are having these, if you're seeing things like that in very conservative publications, you would never expect. um, It may be, maybe a sign that we're onto something there. This is the time to be talking about everything.
1: I mean, yeah, that's why I say that I think there's a zeitgeist brewing uh, from denial to panic and, and um, seeing things like that. And also a major study just came out called the Lancet or eat Lancet report, (laughs) Uh, I think it's a British outfit called Lancet, but this report essentially showed how you could feed 10 billion people on reduced agricultural lands with ecological farming uh, better than we can with industrial agriculture, right? And so those kind of technical reports, I went to the United Nations, the debut of that report about three weeks ago we're beginning to understand how, you know, a a fairly detailed plan to shift to ecological farming that would better feed the world. And uh, if we, Lester Brown used to say we needed to do everything possible to level off at eight eight billion and decrease over time. Well, it's too late for that, 8.5 billion, 9 billion. I mean, this report shows how we could feed 10. I don't think we'll ever get over over, nine and a half or 10 before the ecological kind of collapse of agricultural systems uh, reduces things in a a quite tragic way. Uh, But we at least know on paper how to make these changes. And um, global growth is slowing down. So the people forcing business as usual are still well-funded and powerful and deeply problematic. We got 846 systems and the science says that if you can save half of the flora and fauna in each of those unique systems, you can save 90% of the species. In our paper, we, we've determined that over 100 of those already have half of it saved in, in protection. And some of that may be paper parts that needs to be fortified, uh, but there's another you know one hundred and fifty or two hundred that have at least half of the flora and fauna of that original system, but it's not protected, but conceptually it could be. And then there's a third category that said you know one of you know another say one hundred and fifty of the eight hundred and forty six zones only has about twenty percent of the original flora and fauna but with good conservation biology, could be restored and rewilded back to uh, the 50% that could then be protected. And then the fourth and final category are things like Kansas, where, you know, you don't have much of any of the original flora and fauna left. You know, it's just industrial wheat fields or corn or some, some, you know, monoculture nightmare. So at any rate, that's a plan on paper. And the companion piece to the Paris Climate Accord, the global Global deal for nature, would pressure governments to make, make the systematic commitments. And these are nature-based solutions that also scrub carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's a very big part of trying to stay below 2 degrees centigrade, try to achieve that 1.5 degree centigrade range, which is a lot less nightmarish than 2 degree or 3 degree or 4 degree, which is, you know, Certainly the death of industrial civilization, if not the extinction of humanity and most of the web of life. So, again, the major components are there for the solutions. They've got to be popularized. They've got to be funded. And, and, uh, and that's, that's the work of, of a lot of good people across the planet.
0: What are some of the things that you see as being really important ways that people can help? I mean, what is an individual who's listening to this supposed to do?
1: We know that buying a, a, an electric hybrid car and changing your light bulbs to compact fluorescent or, or, or better <laughs> uh, isn't going to get the job done. And yet people should do that also.
0: Right. People should do that
1: also. Right. And, and uh, I encourage people to get involved at city council and government, county government levels and state government levels uh, because you can see action there in san francisco which was you know um, not your normal town across america uh, but we were able to pass a precautionary principle ordinance that was um forced every department in the entire city to to look at at precautionary activities you know whether that was the purchase of a public transport bus engine or window cleaner for the offices right um And we were able to pass hundred million dollar solar bonds, and we were able to pass green building ordinances. So all of those things uh, really matter because you know city council people become, you know, state assembly people or governors, and governors become presidents. And that local that local political action is is something that's very important for people to do. And of course, you know, you got to dig in and support the gutsy groups out there, the ones with the more sort of deep deeper ecological perspective and that have visionary and pragmatic plans to to connect up the corridors of protected areas people can get on the uh, nature needs half website and and uh, see a lot of other uh, suggestions on that, on how to help with that but this is the first time we've ever had a plan on paper that i'm aware of uh, that would address the sixth grade extinction and and so we've got a fighting chance to halt that extinction and you know there's no social equity on a dead planet uh, we have got to save the natural systems that support all life and that's a major part of it so if you're out there sort of pushing renewable energy good for you but don't let that be the only thing that you help educate people on we need to to be systems thinkers so study a bit of general systems theory and find out what it means to, to think holistically uh, from an ecological perspective and uh, we're going to need a lot of conservation biologists in the future to do a lot of restoration work so if you're about if you're a young person about to thinking of an ecological of an of a college career or what to study uh, conservation biology is a good field to go into
0: randy thank you so much i know we went a little long today but uh thank you so much for taking the time to be on R- rewilding earth
1: Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Let's rewild the entire planet. And you guys are a heroic part of that. So thank you also, too.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.